took us coming in there to get them all in the studio with one another because there was a lot of bitching. Clapton reminisces about the band's state of mind in 1975. For all of the success the band had had, the group was never truly able to become that cohesive group that they once were. Like timeless other examples in other bands, priorities were different. Opinions were divided. And drugs and alcohol blurred the lines even further. As Clapton remembers, getting the band back on the same page, let alone in the same room by 1975, was difficult. Ultimately, that is the most tragic aspect of the 70s era of the group. Also, the band burst onto the scene not even six years earlier, and were primed to continue the musical revolution that they started. However, as Robert Hilburn noted in the Los Angeles Times in December of 1975, the band, which had moved its personnel and professional base from Woodstock to Malibu, had been in what appeared to be a semi-retirement, leaving others, chiefly the Allman Brothers, Steely Dan, and the Eagles, to contend for American leadership in rock. The band had left their birth of a musical movement to others, namely, as Hilburn suggests, rather than continue to output quality records. The band seemed content with continuing to do their own work with others, or rather, Robertson doing his own work and the rest of the band continuing in pairs with other artists, where they were more musically stimulated and had more room to explore. Levon had been keeping busy, and personal relationships in both California and New York found himself with one of the finest moments in his career in early 1975. Back in Woodstock at his barn, he took part in the recording the Muddy Waters record, later dubbed Woodstock Album. Helm had kept a relationship with Henry Glover, a producer who had worked with Roulette Records and had a connection to Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. Glover, who was in semi-retirement, had come out to create RCO with Levon standing for our company, and helped get his recording facilities in the barn set up. Glover was also instrumental in getting the Muddy Waters Levon Helm collaboration set up. Levon later stating, I would give Glover all the credit for most of it. Waters and his regulars, Bob Margolin and Pinetop Perkins, were joined in the studio by Helm on drums, Garth Hudson on organ, Howard Johnson on horns, old Hawks guitarist Fred Carter and band friend, and harp player Paul Butterfield. The album was unique for more than one reason. They had recorded in the Chestnut Timbered Barn, giving it a rich sound over the course of two days in February of 1975. It was also important for Hellman Co. to cut the album live off the floor to give it a feel of a chess record sound of the 50s. Levon later stated, We made sure Muddy had that big Newman microphone to sing in, so he had his voice covered. Then everybody right in his lap nearby. I got up real close with the drums so I could really hear his guitar and everything, and hear his voice, and try my best to play with him. And it just made the whole thing a lot of fun to get up that close and, you know, tie right into what he was pulling off. Waters also strayed from his regular blues renditions and mixed it up with some other tunes. This included show tunes like Let the Good Times Roll by Louis Jordan, Why Are People Like That by band friend and Woodstock resident Bobby Charles, and Lieber and Stoller, Kansas City. This was also supplemented with Waters' originals going down to Main Street, Born With Nothing, Funny Sounds, and Love Deep As The Ocean. Dictate your love and your money. Dictate your sugar and your honey. Dictate your skinny or fat. Yeah, I can't feel like like that. Dictate your house and your home. Dictate the flesh from your bones. 
It would end up being Muddy's last release for Chess Records and perhaps one of his most swingingest records to date with the talent involved. Levon later said, Waters certainly called the shots as to what we wanted to do and at the same time gave us a whole lot of freedom on how we wanted to do it and just let everybody have a good time. Upon the album's release, it was lauded critically and ended up winning a Grammy for Best Ethnic or Traditional Folk Recording in 76. More importantly for Helm, it was a chance to meet one of his idols. He hadn't crossed paths with Muddy before, and his respect grew even more during those sessions. Levon remembers finally going downtown Woodstock to a restaurant and just shooting the shit and eating good meals with Muddy Waters. Later saying, We would never get very serious unless we were playing. I hung out with him every minute that I could, without just bringing him down and making a nuisance on myself. And Levon's parting tribute to the Bluesmen was on Valentine's Day. 200 residents gathered, and the mayor declared the day Muddy Waters Day in Woodstock and presented him with a key to the city. Apparently it made Waters cry. He was touched. Levon always kept a photo of himself, Muddy Waters, and Paul Butterfield on that day in his kitchen to remember such an occasion. Now back in Los Angeles in March of 75, Bill Graham was organizing a large benefit show called Snack, or Students Need Athletics, Culture, and Kick. The event was to raise money for extracurricular activities in San Francisco schools. Rick Levon and Garth had signed up and played for nearly 60,000 fans at Kizar Stadium. They were joined on the bill by The Grateful Dead, Tower of Power, Santana, The Doobie Brothers, Joan Baez, and Starship. Rick Levon and Garth surprised the crowd by being joined by Bob Dylan and Neil Young, to the surprise of the audience. Also, Tim Drummond and Ben Keith joined on guitar and pedal steel. The band trio played through a couple of their songs, including their songs, Loving You Is Sweeter Than Ever, The Weight, and Ain't That A Lot Of Love, before backing Dylan and Young. They were also present at the final performance of Will The Circle Be Unbroken with all the performers. The benefit ended up bringing in roughly $300,000 for students, a massive success. And while working between sessions with Neil Young and gearing up to record Northern Lights Southern Crosses, with Levon bookending his relationship with partner Libby Titus, he found eyes for a new woman. Sandra Dodd, a 26-year-old from Virginia, was living in Lake Tahoe when she made a trip up to Los Angeles with her friends who were acquainted with Rusty Kershaw. The guitarist who, among many other things, played and hung out with Neil Young and Levon Helm in the studio. And according to Sandra Tuzzi's book on Helm, he had his eyes on her from the moment she saw her. Quote, Levon first saw the beautiful brunette in the swimming pool at the West Hollywood Sunset Marquis Hotel and took her out for sushi. Now, while Sandy and Levon had a connection, she returned to Virginia, but her and Levon kept in touch nonetheless. The album begins with a statement. 
It's not in your face, but it's quite clear. As Robert Palmer states in his review in Rolling Stone magazine, Robbie Robertson's usually clean-cutting guitar quivers through a wah-wah in a phase shifter, and Garth Hudson is using multiple synthesizers to create an orchestra-like overlay. The entrance of Levon Helm's voice and its Arkansas inflection intact provides a familiar reference, but only momentarily. The band was evolving, for lack of a better term, from their earlier, more muddy, more acoustic sound. However, thematically, there is a through line. Forbidden Fruit is, as Robertson later said, about our current state of affairs. Kind of a check yourself before you wreck yourself. Something that the band had explored on previous records with songs like The Shape I'm In. It also returned to the band theme of constantly wrestling with the duality between emptiness through spirituality and temptation. Rather than it being overtly dark, like you may find on Cahoots, it's rather light. Take a listen to the first verse of the song to set that theme in progress. Now back on the instrumentation, the song is slinky and it grooves in a way that we have come to know from the group. Helm's drums are sharp and snappy, making great use of ghost notes. Richard brings in the clavinet, paired with Garth's use of both organ and synth. The band also seemed to finally be locked in on the right balance between the modern and the retro sound, bringing them together harmoniously. Together with Danko joining Helm on the chorus and vocals, this blends all of the best of the band and provides a great opening for the album. Quote, Richard Manuel, who sang his homeless narrative like someone who had looked into the abyss and seen it staring right back, he pulled no punches, giving nothing away to the nostalgic, the treacly, or the funeral. Each word arrives like a gut punch. This is what Nick DiRizio stated on the band's Hobo Jungle, the second number on the album. Over the train yard lay a smooth coat of frost And although nobody here really knows The very same time nobody's lost. Manuel, who had for all intensive purposes given up on a large part of his life, lived alone with empty liquor bottles for much of the mid-70s. His wife and children had left him, and his flirtation with the extreme aided in the next track that Robert Hilbert deemed those who have stepped from the mainstream in a way that causes them to be labeled an outcast. And while Hobo Jungle seems to be about Richard, the context also lives larger and refers to the group as a whole. Hilburn goes on to say, the song's universal tone turns it into a gentle ode to anyone who seeks his own, sometimes lonely, unpopular path. Star, the art. 
And Hilburn is entirely correct. The band weren't the only ones perplexed about their lack of desire to be part of the mainstream discourse. However, Manuel's vocal is what takes this song from something rather ordinary to something rather interesting. As Robertson later stated, there's no doubt that it was thrilling to be able to put the songs in the hands and tools of Richard Manuel. To this day, I still don't know any singer that can bring that kind of sadness so boldly and movingly to the front. And as Hilburn notes in his review in 75, that Grammy voters should really be taking a note if they're really serious about honoring the best performance of the year. High praise indeed. to the third track on the album, We Are Treated with Ophelia. The song is centered around the namesake, the heroine of Ophelia. The name is quite well known for its association with Shakespeare, and scholar Stephen Bueller believes that there is a parallel to the Shakespeare's Othello, rather, specifically the themes of racism in particular. Bueller thinks that Ophelia is a black woman in a southern town who is forced to leave because of racism and negative racial attitudes towards interracial relationships as the singer is white. This correlation is backed up by lyrics like, Honey, you know we broke the rules with something up against the law. And to further his argument, Bueller suggests that the line, Please darken my door, could also possibly suggest Ophelia's skin color. However, that isn't necessarily the only interpretation of the song. Barney Hoskins has a different opinion. A lot more simple, Hoskins doesn't believe the name is a reference to Hamlet or the themes of Othello, but rather a reference to the country comedian and the Grand Old Opry star, Minnie Pearl, whose real name was Sarah Ophelia Coley Cannon. Overall, if you look at the rest of the lyrical content of the song, it never explicitly states that the relationship is between the singer and Ophelia, and critics have different opinions on the relationship. Author Craig Harris refers to Ophelia as an old friend, and Nick DeRizio claims that Ophelia is a lover that has left town in a hurry. Musically, the song slots itself into a similar role as previous band cuts like W.S. Walcott Medicine Show on Stage Fright and Life is a Carnival from Cahoots, a tune with a Dixieland flavor and a barroom juke. Hoskins likens the tune to Up on Cripple Creek for the simple reason of it having a good humored regret. Robertson later said, in terms of chord progression, it was something that could come out of the 1930s. You have Levon featured in the lead vocal slot, and Blood, Sweat, and Tears vocalist David Clayton Thomas later said on Helm's take, it's so real, so genuine. There's no artifice about his singing or his drumming. It's just right in the pocket. Every musician understands that. I think it reflects the man's personality. With Levon on vocal, it's later supported wonderfully on harmony by Richard Manuel, who is also playing the organ. Garth Hudson is shining like a star on this track, injecting his best efforts on, on the synth, brass, and woodwind instruments, which gives it more of an aforementioned Dixieland feel.
Multiple critics have suggested it's one of Hudson's finest efforts with the band. Nick DiRizio states, Hudson's triumph, his musical testament, his masterpiece. And the band's own Robbie Robertson had this to say on Garth's work on Ophelia. The full-on modernism is in the sound, in the arrangement, and was paramount in Garth's experimentation. It is unquestionably one of his greatest feats, in my opinion, on any band song. Also, Mark Kemp of Rolling Stone suggests that Ophelia, along with Acadian Driftwood, and It Makes No Difference, re-cement the band's reputation as the best rock songwriters. And with Acadian Driftwood, that is the next track on the eventual album. The band returns to the stylings of the early historically-based storytelling akin to W.S. Walcott or The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. In particular, Acadian Driftwood portrays the troubled history of Nova Scotia and Acadia. More on that, the expulsion of the French Acadians by the British in lands that now make up the modern-day provinces of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island in Canada, and a portion of the United States, state Maine, over the course of nine years between 1755 and 1764. Robertson takes the lead on the lyrics in this song, and he was interested in Canadian history and was influenced by poet Henry Wadsworth, Longfellow's poem Evangeline, which describes the deportation of Acadians. Originally published in 1847, the poem follows an Acadian girl named Evangeline and her search for her long-lost love, Gabriel, set during the time of the expulsion of the Acadians. However, when writing the lyrics, the band also took a lot of liberties with the history. For example, the deportation uh, that is mentioned throughout the song happened during the French and Indian War that erupted in North America prior to the opening of the wider conflict of the Seven Year War. So the war referenced in the lyrics was not over, but in fact it just begun. But as Peter Viney later notes, the band created a lyric and melody that expressed the emotional truth of what happened and expressed the spirit of the people. That's not the same, though, as historical truth. And Viney is correct, as the band was clearly trying to illustrate the ethos of the time and paint a rather simple picture for the listener. And when it came time to perform the song, the band used all three of their singers on it, swapping in typical band fashion. The song could be from the perspective of multiple people, but likely all three singers occupy the same perspective. Manuel is used to sing more of the narrative aspects of the song, Danko takes a verse, and Helm is used to display the perspectives of the farmer. All three singers usually take half a verse before joining each other on the chorus. Acadian driftwood, gypsy tailwind, they call my home, the land of snow, Canadian cold front, rolling in, what a way to ride, oh what a way to go. Something else of note is the French section of the song. Danko, Helm, and Manuel all singing. And for those who do not understand French, it roughly translates to, you know, Acadia, I long for the country, I am homesick. Your snow, Acadia, makes tears in the sun, or for the sun. I am arriving, Acadia, or I am coming, Acadia.
Musically, Manuel occupies the clavinet, Helm is on drums, Danko on bass, and Robertson on acoustic guitar. Hudson, as always, plays various instruments, which gives the song a storied feel, from the accordion to the piccolo to the bagpipe chanter. The combination of those instruments from Garth gives it more of a French-Canadian feel, and has been noted that the piccolo has a tie-in to the military tin whistle feel. Lastly, Byron Berline is brought on on the fiddle, who had played with Dillard and Clark, the Rolling Stones, Willie Nelson, and Bob Dylan. As Robertson is quoted saying, We knew Byron from way back when he used to play the circuit in Oklahoma. Rick had played fiddle on a few songs in the past, but we needed a special flavor for Driftwood. It was difficult to do, and we didn't want to take an incredible amount of time to get it right. My clothes were wet and I was drenched to the bone. Critically, the song received strong response. Robert Palmer suggests that it is the masterpiece of Northern Lights. And Barney Hoskins stated, However great the other songs on Northern Lights are, the album's centerpiece was Acadian Driftwood, comparable in its evocation of the defeated and injustice to the night they drove Old Dixie down. Moreover, there had been some negativity, though, around the track. Critic Grail Marcus stated that it's a set's big piece in Acadian Driftwood, aims for another level of the band, and it missed. And writer Art Dudley said, We can point out the weirdly overrated Acadian Driftwood as the first offense in a too long movement wherein a stylish rock stars get in touch with their fill in the ethnic blank roots. With the next tune, Ring Your Bell, the band returns to some years later back in their history with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, also known as the Mounties. As alluded to on Caledonia Mission from their first album, Music from Big Pink, Ring Your Bell explains the tale far more straightforwardly. With renewed interest in the group vocal duties, Manuel Helm and Danko play off each other, taking line by line. Their performance is equal parts laid back and hard-hitting. Musically, the rhythm is stellar. It's groovy and fun. Danko plays a bass line that carries the song forward, and Levon plays his drums at the top of the beat with a funky kick drum. Take a listen. While the context of the song may have leaned into a time of stress and uncertainty of being arrested by the Mounties, crafting the song was quite the opposite. Robbie later said that the tune was almost like an inside joke. It made you want to have a good time, and in a lot of cases, it allows you to play a much looser and fun way. And to compound this, Nick DiRizio makes a unique observation when reviewing the song. He said, So complete is the band's symmetry, so tumbling and loose to their delivery, that the idea that these same men a year or so later would cease forever performing in this five-man formation remains utterly unfathomable. You can almost hear them goosing each other along as Levon Coo's Give Me Some Skin with lips smacking salaciousness. It's why I never ever tire of this one. Shake your tower, your well, turn on your 
and it can't escape the mention along with the strong groove by Denko and Helm that it gives plenty of room for Robertson and Hudson to also flex. Garth uses a series of new toys to give the song a fresh sheen, and Robertson employs his Stratocaster to cut through the mix with ease. Ring Your Bell is so catchy and so groovy. It remains the underrated gem on an album that gets heaps of praise for more heady numbers like Acadian Driftwood, or the next track, It Makes No Difference. As writer Michael Shapiro writes, there are typically two types of love songs. Those that express joy and jubilation and exultation in a thriving relationship, and those that emphasize anguish and heartbreak. It Makes No Difference falls emphatically into the latter category. He's correct, and It Makes No Difference doesn't hold back from the get-go, as Danko pines in the first verse. It makes no Lyrically, the song isn't really special. That's not to say that the lyrics aren't good. Among the lyrics are metaphors used to portray the singer's sadness through images of weather, such as the sun never shining, constant raining, clouds hanging low, and the singer's inability to get over a failed relationship. But what makes it work so well is Danko's lead vocal. The combination of simple phrasing and lilting country rock chords combined with the anguished heartache in the voice of Danko is what makes this song so fantastic. Barney Hoskins wrote that there is something so elemental in how Danko expresses his loss that it transcends self-pity, which makes him so perfect for this ballad. Paired on the chorus now, the band invokes what they do best, harmonies. Danko then goes to the bottom, Levon, Strong in the middle, and Richard's piercing falsetto on the top. There really isn't anything better. To cap off one of Rick's defining vocal performances, the final lines of the verse nearly break Rick's voice with, well, I love you so much, it's all I can do just to keep myself from telling you. It's simple perfection. You can feel the emotion. And Danko is able to channel what Manuel does so well on so many other tracks with such specificity. Switching gears to the musicality, like the lyrics, they are simple yet effective in serving the song. Two points of note are the solo sections from Robertson and Hudson. Robbie, known for those pinching, high crying notes on his Stratocaster, which sounds like tears, and Hudson rips through on the old saxophone to give it a truly m remarkable performance. Robbie later noted that while the band was crafting the song, quote, when we first started discovering the possibilities, it kept expanding to more levels of emotion. What Garth and I could add to finalize the statement of the song was purely instinctual.
Critically, the song was lauded. Band biographer Craig Harris considered it one of pop music's saddest songs. And writer Nick DiRizio similarly states that the band as a whole has never constructed a sadder moment, nor one with more direct specificity. Critic Rob Bauman claimed that it might be the best romantic ballad ever done by the group. And the Sarasota Herald Tribune described the song as poignant and praised its eloquence of being worthy of a Grammy. Another critic, Ed Masley, praises its heartbreaking soul. An American songwriter later said, nobody did melancholic grandeur better than the band, and there's no topic more suited to that treatment than lost love. So it would have been an upset if it makes no difference hadn't turned out so fine. As Levon stated on the next track, Jupiter Hollow, quote, it was a showcase for Garth, who really earned his nickname of Honey Boy on that album because he was the one who put in the studio time that sweetened the record and put it in a state-of-the-art studio mode. Hudson occupied many of the new tools Shangri-La had to offer, including the ARP, Roland, and Mini Moog, and other synth. Like a crazy wizard behind the board, he gave the music almost an orchestral overlay. Interestingly, with two keyboard players in the band between Manuel and Hudson, Robbie tries his hand behind the clavinet for this performance, especially since there's no guitar present on the song. Vocally, the song is of note as well. Returning to the tried and true method of employing the full range of band singers, Barney Hoskin notes all three vocalists played an equal part in the gorgeous Jupiter Hollow, all weaving in and out of each other, creating a perfect tapestry. Barney Hoskin notes, quote, all three vocalists played an equal part in the gorgeous Jupiter Hollow, end quote. So far, so near. Lyrically, there are few readings. On the surface, the words seem medieval, medieval and like a fairy tale, mentions of dragons and unicorns. Though writer Peter Viney interprets the song as much, much more, not only giving explanation of the lyrics of Jupiter Hollows, but how it might connect to the other songs on the album. He says, quote, Medieval paintings were full of symbols and cross-references, and this song is too. The she-dragon appears with a unicorn. In Greek mythology, the unicorn was known as the goat stag and held secrets to immortality. This is set in the Arcadian world of Greece. There's yet another clever piece of writing in Beneath the Burgundy Skies, which is the mirror reflection of the wine-dark sea of Greece. I even begin to wonder if the move from Akkadi, Arcadia Driftwood, to the origins of its name, Arcadia, is deliberate. End quote. And that's just the beginning of the various juxtapositions between the lyrical content and the Greek mythology. And while the song takes a sharp turn from the earlier, more acoustic records of the band, the risk was well worth the award. Critics adored the song, and Hudson was able to really elevate it. Chris Morris, a critic for Billboard, said, Garth Hudson takes the music on a lustrous, layered sheen. It's hard to think of another band album that sounds so plain gorgeous. 
And Grail Marcus stated on Hudson's contributions, quote, he played with deceptive anonymity. His music worked as a presence, tapestries hung on back walls. No nuance escaped him. No shade of emotion, no matter how elusive, seemed beyond him. To complete the album, we are treated to Rag and Bones, a sleek urban tale similar to something from Cahoots or a song like Smoke Signals. Robertson, who takes up lyrical duties on this song, is likely referring to his own personal life, or more accurately, what he witnessed as his family members tried to make their way in the hustle and bustle of Toronto life. Robertson's Jewish heritage is on full display, and his grandfathers and uncles dealt with much prejudice. He is quoted as saying, It wasn't until my mid-teens that I was aware that when people referred to Rag and Bones men who come up and down the back lanes of downtown Toronto as the Sheeny men, that it was a derogatory remark. I didn't know the heritage from Eastern Europe of Jewish people had connection to the person whose song cried out in the back alleys, and that he was of Jewish descent. I certainly hope to reconnect with this part of my heritage in a song soon again. Musically, the song is sleek, like many other tunes on this album. Nick DiRizio summarizes the collective sound well when he states in his review of the song, quote, Garth Hudson's quilted keyboards weave in and around Levon's smacking cadence, even as Robertson's insistent riff punctuates Manuel's vocal like a baseball card fluttering through the bicycle spokes on a sidewalk. And more on Manuel's vocal, again, underappreciated as a whole as a vocalist, his sound is steeped here in an emotional complication and it's on full display. His performance shows restraint, but fully paints the picture of desperation in the lyrics. Ultimately, the song puts a cap on an album in a symbolic fashion. The modernity of the music and the lyrical themes are wrapped up in one rather straightforward song, signaling the work that the band had in store for the future. And as Nick DiRizio states so eloquently, quote, it seems as if the band is ready to engage in the world as it is today, rather than one by its own design.
With the album complete, the atmosphere in the studio was somewhat improved compared to the other recent efforts. Robertson later said, The creative energy of Shangri-La felt productive, and we thought we now had the technology and staff to mix the album there. All the guys were involved, and it was good to have the gang back in a circle. The album was mixed collectively between the band and the engineers. Nat Jeffrey, who had worked with Joe Cocker, Bob Dylan, and Eric Clapton, was responsible alongside Rob Fabroni to complete the mix. For the promotion of the album, the band tapped photographer Reed Miles for the cover. Miles had done official covers for the newly released Basement Tapes record and had spent years at Blue Note Records shooting covers for jazz legends. Miles was brought back to do Northern Lights Southern Crosses. The band built a fire on the beach behind Robertson's house and during the twilight hours of the day, the shot was taken. And with the record ready to go, the band was generally pleased with what they were able to create. Robbie later stated, quote, we felt better about this record of new songs than anything the band had done in a while. I hadn't been sure whether a record from the band would even be in the cards. Northern Lights Southern Crosses was released on November 1st, 1975. Although it garnered generally positive reviews, and hailed as the band's comeback record, it climbed to only number 26 on Billboard's album chart. Rolling Stone contended the album was a field goal. Robert Christow, known for his rather so-so takes on the band, wrote, The pure calmliness of every melody on this album leads to an immediate infatuation. However, it wasn't long before the harmony of the studio started to crack. Upon release, it was clear yet again that Robertson had taken the lion's share of songwriting credits. And in particular, Twilight, a song that was not included in the original release, was also credited to Robertson, much to Danko's chagrin. He was quoted later saying, I hate to say it, but it's as much of a Rick Danko song as it is a Robbie Robertson song. I just forgot to seek credit. Robbie was very tight with sharing those responsibilities. That's why he's where he is, and that's why we are where we are. Stinging commentary for sure. And according to Robertson, Manuel was disappointed by his own apparent lack of songwriting. Robertson claims, out of guilt, Manuel offered to sell his publishing to him. Manuel's offer to sell apparently also led Danko and Hudson to offer to sell their publishing to Robertson as well. But as always, Levon was holding out. He refused to sell his portion. Now, Robertson's versions of events should be taken with a grain of salt. We really haven't heard this corroborated by anybody else. And Manuel, now in another bout of alcoholism and drug abuse, was in a very vulnerable state, really in no place to be selling his publishing. But with lawyers and managers now swarming over the band like vultures on dead prey, it was highly likely that a prerogative to consolidate all the band's assets and any moral obligation Robertson may have felt was quickly shuttered in the name of pure profit and consolidation of power around the band by his team. And with that momentary happiness in the studio relinquished, and as Clapton remembered, there was plenty of unhappiness and coldness from the group towards each other, or more accurately, towards Robertson. Alas, the band now had a record out deemed a comeback and had to tour. Though touring through 1974 was rocky, filled with mixed results, the band now entered the latter half of the 70s. They were starting to ponder whether it was all worth it to trudge along in this rough marriage. Thank you everybody for listening to The Band A History. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Northern Lights Southern Crosses is, you know, an album that, like said in the episode, was deemed a comeback. Uh, and I'd always liked the album, but through the process of trying to compile everything and the thoughts, 
and what critics and writers thought about it, I listened to it a lot. And it really is such an evolution in their sound. Where I think they are on Northern Lights, Southern Crosses is where they wish they could have been on an album like Cahoots. You have the better balance between modern lyrics and stories of old. You have production techniques that they were trying on Cahoots to do themselves, but didn't really know how to do. Um, and they also had better technology. Uh, technology was really starting to advance very quickly, and they had Shangri-La now built uh, with these great pieces. You know, as as mentioned briefly, and what we will get into as the band kind of winds down in their first iteration before regrouping later in the 80s without Robertson, it would be interesting to see if the group had ultimately stayed together what kind of music they would have made in the 80s. Uh, a lot of rock groups and rock singers and things struggled in the 80s to find their identity because they were, you know, now hit by the wall of synth and pop and things like that. And it would have been interesting to see where the band would have gone. You're starting to see inklings of what Hudson could have maybe done with some of their music in the 80s to make it uh, viable for audiences. And it's also another great thing to look at in terms of how these fractures and these relationships began to break down even further and how once other people started getting involved with the band outside of the main core, things didn't really go well. Uh, and regardless of how they could pull it together for momentary times, it just didn't seem to be a happy marriage. So, you know, it's, it's sad as we review these things, but it's ultimately a tale that's old as time with groups like this. Uh, the fracturing is starting to begin. But I look forward to exploring a little bit more. We have some big things coming up with The Last Waltz, uh, which I hope to do a great, uh, great episode or two on, uh, as well as 76 as a whole, which was a super busy year, before ultimately talking about what happens after The Last Waltz. Because, as you know, the reason I started this podcast is because I was tired of people saying that the band ended in 1976, 1977, 78, when The Last Waltz came out, but rather... Not only did they have a bunch of solo albums that were remarkable, they got back together in the 80s and released a lot of music in the 90s, three albums. Uh, so we will be going there. We will be talking about that. That will not be skipped over. So definitely stay tuned as we, as we go into that type of stuff. I want to mention, as always, the show support that you can give. Uh, we have a Patreon. We have a few great patrons there. They're donating money monthly. We thank them very much for helping us create the show. Uh, there's tons of stuff that goes in the back end, and anything can help. So if you're interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash thebandahistory. There are a couple different tiers, as little as a buck. You can start donating a buck all the way up to 10 bucks a month. Uh, we're going to have a lot of blog posts there, some extra bonus content. I think I'm going to do a commentary track to The Last Waltz that will be available there and many, many more things in the future. Uh, and definitely follow us along on other platforms too, Instagram.com slash The Band Podcast. We put a lot of work there, have a great following. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter as well, The Band of History, The Band of Podcast. Uh, we have a Facebook group that's growing. Just type in The Band Podcast on Facebook if that's your jam and you can find us there as well. And as always, uh, you know, we have a great sponsor uh, who has come on board, AKG Microphones, best microphones in the game, live performance microphones, podcasting microphones, and they gave us a great kit over here. So not only are we using that podcasting kit, which includes this gorgeous microphone and great studio headphones, but it's what we're going to be using 
till the end of time on this podcast. AKG is the best in the business and you can go to the website akg.com to sort through all of the great stuff. Get, get a mic yourself. Start your own podcast. Start recording those vocals. So thanks everybody for listening to the Band of History. We really hope you enjoyed it. We'll catch you on the next one. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.